here we are again, listeners. The show that you've been waiting for is here at last, as usual, every Friday. As you'll know, undoubtedly, this is the Nasty Pasty Podcast, and it's run by me, Andy Roberts, a geeky Pisces with a flair for drinking heavily, playing PlayStation till the early AM, and of course, devouring up hundreds of horror films in my spare time. Back in 2007, when I was just 16, I was brought a cut version of Lucio Fulci's House by the Cemetery, which changed my life. Mainly because a quick Google search after I watched it yielded the whole sordid story of the Video Nasties, a group of films prosecuted in Britain for being so obscene that adults, children and dogs apparently would go berserk and murder everyone around them. It was all a big fat lie, perpetrated by the Conservatives and the right-wing political movements to distract everyone from the fact that the country was in an utter mess, with riots, mass unemployment, strikes and the Falklands conflict lurking in the background. Rather than tackle those failures, the government found it easier to blame everything from animal mutilations, child abuse, sexual deviancy and bad language on the newly introduced phenomenon of VHS tapes. It was ridiculous back then, and it's just as ridiculous now, especially as those involved try to brush it under the carpet. I certainly won't be forgetting any time soon, as this podcast looks at similar titles to the video nasties and compares them, pondering why it was only the specifically listed titles that got hauled in when there was ample material to choose from that was more suitable to be classed as obscene. After the excitement of last week's slashes with a twist, we're ditching the slasher for now and moving on to a more science fiction based theme this week. It's Mutated Humans, focusing on 1984's Mutant and 1986's Alien Predator, which was released as Mutant 2 in the UK. So, it's sort of a non-sequel to the first film. Let's waste no further time and get into the nitty-gritty of our first treat, Mutant. A man looks around an old house after nightfall, discovering a strange yellow substance on the ground which he collects. Gaining access to the house, he investigates the basement, only to discover a corpse in a cupboard with a strange cut on its palm. Panicking, he tries to leave, only to encounter a screaming assailant who thrusts him in the air and drops him down dead, a strange burning coming from his face. 
A few days later, brothers Josh and Mike are driving through the country and run afoul of a truck full of hicks who ram them off the road out of spite for city folks. Forced to abandon their vehicle, the pair flag down another bumpkin called Mel who drops them off in town. Finding the town to be quite empty, the brothers pass a drunk who stumbles into an alley to pee. He's then grabbed by a screaming figure who burns him in the face, arousing the suspicion of Mike who discovers his body. Getting into the bar, trying to phone the police, Mike is then accosted by the hicks who ran them off the road, led by the bigoted Albert, who draws his switchblade and attacks him. Josh intervenes, but is unable to prevent Mike from being cut, just as Sheriff Stewart arrives and breaks the fight up. Eager to show him the corpse out back, the group discover a normal drunk instead of the dead body which was there before, leading Stuart to be sceptical of Mike's claim, though he does spy the strange yellow liquid and collects a sample. Taking the brothers to a local doctor called Myra, Josh gets his wound tended while Stuart leaves the yellow sample with Myra to analyse. He drops the boys off at Mrs Mape's house, a local lady who rents rooms who's more than happy to accept them in, explaining that she has little company since her daughter passed away. During the night, Mike hears strange scratching noises under his bed and is suddenly grabbed by one of the strange creatures and dragged under, while Myra attends to a couple of her old patients, letting her assistant Vic know that something odd is going on, especially as the streets were so empty. In the morning, Josh finds Mike's room empty and the streets to be completely abandoned, but he pops into the bar from the night before, meeting local barmaid and teacher Holly, who offers to give him a lift to the town's gas station. At Myra's clinic, Stuart speaks to her about the yellow substance, which Myra has deduced is human blood, vitally missing its red blood cells and bearing strange properties, such as increasing in mass upon contact with regular blood. Suddenly, a smashing sound is heard in the supply room, with the pair discovering an intruder has taken several vials of blood. At the school, Holly picks up some papers with Josh in tow and notices a schoolboy called Billy waiting inside the class, whom she sends home due to school being cancelled. After hearing a noise in the basement, Josh investigates and finds the corpse of a little girl, just before Albert sees this and attacks him with a pipe. Managing to evade him, Josh runs away, arousing the suspicion of Stuart, who ends up on the scene from Albert's complaint. Myra recovers the body and notes the presence of the yellow blood, and convinces Stuart to let her examine the body to find out what's really going on. Though resistant, he allows her to, before heading to the girl's house and informing her parents, only to find the house in disarray and the father dead inside a pantry. Holly tends to her Uncle Jack in bed, who seems to be stricken with an illness, while Josh tries to take her keys to go out looking for Mike, only for the pair to kiss when they both agree to stay put, after deducing it would be too dangerous while Stuart is looking for him. Josh suddenly collapses, waking up in Myra's clinic who informs him that he's had a toxic chemical reaction, presumably from the corpse of the little girl. Stuart's colleague disbelieves the sheriff when the father's corpse seems to have disappeared, while Myra, doing the examination on the little girl's body, assumes that a mutation has occurred due to the presence of the acidic zinc chloride in the blood. Because of the increase in blood due to a chemical reaction, Myra surmises that the pressure would be too much and causes the hands to burst open to relieve such pressure, unaware that her companion Vic is undergoing just such a transformation behind her. After deducing that the creatures use the same hand openings to leach blood from their victims, she's attacked by her transformed companion and killed. The next day, Josh and Holly visit a nearby conglomerate due to the mention of the chemical reaction, 
and when hiding nearby, Josh witnesses vats of clearly toxic waste being dumped into the ground before getting caught by Mel. Just as Josh is about to be killed, Holly bursts through the warehouse doors in the car, distracting Mel and his cronies long enough for Josh to disengage them and jump into the car. Holly and Josh escape, severing a hosepipe in the process and dousing Mel and his cohorts in the toxic waste, killing them. Josh heads to Stuart's office only for a drunk Stuart to have been relinquished from his job, while Holly returns to get her Uncle Jack, unaware that he's transformed in his bed. Stuart and Josh arrive just as Jack is about to kill her and drive him off, revealing that the creatures are sensitive to daylight. Upon learning that Mrs Mape's daughter is supposed to be alive, Josh heads back there while Holly and Stuart check out the clinic, only to find that Myra has died and the place is surrounded by a group of the creatures. Josh is locked in the basement by Mapes, only for him to see Mike's corpse along with several others and the mutated daughter Penelope. Managing to bust out, Josh throws Mrs Mapes inside to be killed by her, by her daughter, while Holly locates Billy at the school. She promises to look after him as she finds him in the toilets, only for the pair to be stuck when mutated children swamp the room. As Josh arrives, Holly is unable to prevent Billy from being snatched and killed by the children, while Josh rescues her from the bathroom and locks the kids in. Heading to the clinic, Josh is unable to find Stuart and returns to find a swamp of the creatures attacking Holly and the car. After driving them off, they head down to the road, but they flip the car when one of the creatures hitches a ride on the roof and tries to attack Josh through the window. Finding shelter in a nearby shop, the pair begin to make Molotov cocktails to defend themselves. When Holly goes to get more bottles, she's attacked by Albus, who wants to use her as bait. His plan does not last as he's grabbed by the mutants through the window, forcing Josh and Holly to make a stand against the creatures as the shop is overrun by them. Suddenly, a fleet of cars with headlights on distracts them momentarily before a volley of gunfire completely destroys the mutants. Cautiously leaving the shop, Josh and Holly find that Stuart has successfully left town and brought the cavalry. As Stuart offers Josh to go for a drink, his superior, Dawson, offers his position as sheriff back to him, only for Stuart to outright reject it. What is that concoction? Sodium bisulfate. Well, don't give me any technical garbage, Mara. Just tell me what, what it is. Okay. Drink it. What? It's my father's famous hangover antidote when he was GP 30 years ago. Uh-huh. And he used to give his patients this stuff to drink. <laughs> it's patients' helmets for Dad. After he came back from having a binge. I suggest you drink it up so we can get down to work. Last night I ran some tests on that sample you gave me. And you're not going to believe this. It's blood. Human blood? Well, yes and no. I mean, it does have two out of three main components of blood. Plasma and white cells. Almost no red cells. And then there's some other substance giving it that yellowish color. What is it? <laughs> you got me. There's one thing I know for sure, though. Nothing human can have this in its veins and live. So where did it come from? Is it some sort of disease? No, I don't think so. And there's another thing, Will. Very peculiar. I accidentally spilled some of it on the blood on that boy's handkerchief. Well, it, it absorbed it and grew. I mean, it must have increased in mass almost three times its size. 
I want you to get this over to the county medical center right now. You wait here. want to steal blood. Mutant is one of those films that I'd been lucky enough to see way before I did this episode. It was on one of those cheap DVDs that you'd pick up for a pound at Poundland or Woolworths or something. So I'd seen it as a kid, and I actually grew rather fond of it, which has lent itself to me when I've rewatched it for this episode. It's also one of those instances where watching something you liked as a child leaves a profound effect when, watching as an adult, you'd now notice things that went over your head, and it kind of adds to the experience. Like, I always never understood why the group in Predator are so hostile to Carl Weathers' character, or why Barbara does nothing after being attacked once in Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Seeing them again as a grown-up really opens your eyes, and it's fascinating to think that there was a whole new level to a film that you just simply couldn't perceive as a kid, but you enjoyed it all the same. Originally titled Night Shadows, Mutant is a bit of a hybrid film which cherry-picks elements from dozens of 70s and 80s horror and blends it with the style and feel of a 50s-60s B-movie. It started out as a script called Pestilence, which concerned a small town being infected by a mysterious illness when the military unceremoniously dumps toxic waste on the town's outer limits. This script found its way to the producers, Ego Cantor and Edward L. Montoro, who were interested in the film's premise and they initiated the production, bringing director Mark Rosman to helm the project. The script underwent some rewrites to alter the source of the toxic waste as being dumped by civilians rather than the military, and they significantly altered the effects of the illness to transform the townspeople into monsters, allowing for action sequences to be weaved into the narrative. After just a week of shooting, Rosman felt out of his depth, especially with the high level of action sequences that the script now demanded. Originally hired as the second unit director, John Bud Cardos offered to help out, and eventually became the full-fledged director of the film. Due to the fact that the script was rewritten from one type of movie to another, the end result of Mutant is a real mixed bag of both successes and failures. More success than not, mind you, so it's not all bad news. Mutant suggests at first that it's going to be a Deliverance-style film, with two brothers from the city running afoul of local hicks who seem to be aggressive with them for no reason. It then becomes a quasi-creepy town flick like Dead and Buried or uh, something like Salem's Lot, with the locals clearly hiding something, uh, long shots of dark, foggy, empty streets, and mentions of a strange illness. It then becomes a science fiction film, with the discovery of yellow blood and chemical reactions to the caustic substance. In the final half an hour or so, though, it goes into full-on zombie movie, with an invasion of the infected townsfolk and our two final characters having to barricade themselves in a store and defend their last bastion, a la Night of the Living Dead. You can kind of see traces of the old script with the presence of more subtle dangers and the atmosphere within the early part of the film, which makes it all the more obvious that the script had changed when you suddenly have blood-leeching ghouls attacking en masse. 
Regardless, it does seem to work together despite some ropiness due to the characters and the atmosphere, which are both pretty effective. One of the first things that works for this film are the characters. For a movie of this calibre, the acting is actually rather well done, with Wings Hauser, Lee Montgomery, Bo Hopkins and Jennifer Warren being standouts. The brotherly relationship between Mike and Josh is actually quite sweet and believable, not only due to the actors' on-screen chemistry and the camaraderie, but also due to the great casting too, as they do have similarities in appearance. Mike's character is killed, though, in my opinion, a little too early in the story, though it does function to propel Josh to stay in the clearly unfriendly town to search for him. Similarly, the relationship between Stuart and Myra is equally well established and portrayed. It's certainly well written enough, so much so that the two characters clearly have a past that's never elaborated on, but you still feel that connection when they communicate with each other. I was surprised by how connected I was with Myra's character too, as she's not only intelligent and friendly, but she goes out of her way to investigate the goings-on in addition to her doctorly duties. Her death was actually quite distressing, and Stuart's discovery of her body was quite hard-hitting. So too was the discovery of Mike's death as well, which clearly takes its toll on Josh. Other characters are less effective, but they're not completely ruinous either. Albert is your stereotypical stock hillbilly antagonist whom you'd have no problem seeing oft in awful ways, especially with his ludicrous behaviour of attacking two innocent men and running their car off the road because city folk break all of their laws. Mrs Mapes is another highlight, despite her acting being a little OTT. Her country bumpkin's sickly sweet hospitality could only be covering up some horrendous secret, and true to the genre, her zombified daughter lives in her basement and occasionally snacks on the house guests, which Mapes covers up. Though she's in the film fairly briefly, her appearances are nonetheless memorable, especially her rant when Josh forces his way in. Well, whatever are you talking about? I'm talking about my brother. Now, what yeah, have you and your daughter done with well, I him, told huh? you my daughter was dead. Yeah, well, you lied, lady. You get out of here. Mike! Call the police. Mike! Mike! You got no right! You got no right to be in here! Mike! She gets a rather satisfactory demise when her attempts to kill Josh cause her to fall in the basement with her mutated daughter, in an almost humorous and more poetically justified version of Helen from Night of the Living Dead being killed by her daughter, Karen. Holly, however, is a bit more of a wet fish kind of character, simply present to accompany Josh as his brother is out of action. There's kind of a romantic subplot going on with her and Josh, but it's nowhere near as charming to me as the brotherly love that we had previously. For reasons we'll get to in a bit, Holly is also a little disappointing as female characters go, with the exception of one genuinely kick-ass moment where she rescues Josh by driving into the warehouse where he's being attacked. The next thing that really works in the film's favour is the atmosphere. The off-kilter small town is particularly effective, as not only is the townspeople quite absent in most of the film's shots, but the ones that do turn up act either quite strange or they're drunk. There's also the really effective nighttime shots of fog-ridden streets that are more reminiscent of a Stephen King setup. It's a rather murky, dark film anyway, which only adds to the thick atmosphere, rather deservedly then of the film's original title, Night Shadows. The hillbilly characters and the actual monsters themselves do contribute a tangible threat to the characters too. They're not simply part of the background. The hard-hitting deaths of both Myra and Mike, as well as the completely disturbing taboo death of the child Billy, do contribute an uncomfortable edge to the otherwise routine zombie threat. 
the monstrous zombie mutations themselves are both simultaneously a good point and a sore point of the film. Rather creatively, they're neither barely humanoid monstrosities a la John Carpenter's The Thing, nor are they the flesh-eating corpses of George Romero's Dead trilogy. Instead, the mutants in this film take a little inspiration from multiple sources. They're dishevelled with pallid skin and tenebrous eyes. Reminds me a little bit of Carnival of Souls, or the more traditional depiction of zombies before Romero's canon became gospel. Mostly pale with sunken, lifeless eyes. Unlike both Romero's slow shamblers or the 60s archetype of revived Haitian slaves, the mutants in this film are fast and ferocious, with a screeching howl sound that resembles a whole menagerie of animal cries. There's some inconsistency with this, of course, which we'll get to in a bit, but the creatures are generally just savage and swift, the element of their blood being tainted by toxic waste and mutating into a yellow acidic blood is very similar to the acidic blood of the Xenomorph from the Alien franchise. The fact that this substance expands enough to rupture the skin, especially in the hands of their victims, is also quite similar to the plot details of the video nasty invasion of the blood farmers. The slits in the hands of the creatures with which they drain blood from their prey, smacks of a David Cronenberg film, and the image of blood leeches who require red blood cells and are fatally photosensitive also hints at more of a vampire influence. It's also not hard to see the incredible similarity in the way the creatures attack to a film that we've already covered previously, 1980's The Children, where the antagonists fatally burn anyone they touch with the palms of their hands. So as you can imagine, while the end result is rather unique in its complexity, it has drawn from multiple sources for inspiration, but it does at least get brownie points for trying to eschew the well-trodden path of strictly Romero-esque ghouls. They also, however, are an indication of one of the biggest weaknesses of the film. Inconsistency. The fact that there's a chemical dump owned by a mega conglomerate on the outskirts of town is well known by everybody, but it's not even considered as a major cause of illness, and it's seemingly an oversight that the script doesn't tackle. It also causes rather random and odd effects. The homeless man who is killed in the beginning disappears rather quickly, presumably having mutated nigh instantly, yet both Holly's uncle and Myra's assistant Vic take varying levels of time for the infection to gestate and take over. Even more bizarrely, some victims like the little girl just seem to die after mutating, while people like Josh, Stuart, Holly, Albert and Mrs Mapes seem to have avoided infection completely and inexplicably so. This is no more apparent in Mel's character, who actually handles the toxic substances directly, yet is somehow immune to the fatal effects. It just doesn't sit very well, especially when Josh himself asks why certain people are unaffected. When the characters of a film are pointing out one of the plot holes, it's really not a good sign, especially when it's then left unanswered. The behaviour of the mutants is also at times contradictory. It's established that the creatures are photosensitive, but after encountering the transformed Uncle Jack, he inexplicably escapes outside into the daylight, where it visibly hurts him, but then he just carries on running, rather than try to take shelter. Myra's clinic is also broken into during the day, where blood is poached from her refrigerator. Considering they're averse to light, they don't exactly struggle too badly with it, and it seemingly comes off as just a good reason to have them swarm when night falls. The yellow blood that they secrete is corrosive, as evidenced by the steam when they attack their victims, and the melting through the glass of the car as Josh and Holly try to escape. How in the world, then, is Mrs Mape's daughter Penelope contained in the basement at all? 
especially when her mother is wandering around quite unabashedly upstairs. I mean, the daughter would definitely be trying to escape and eat her. Even the issue of the hand slits doesn't quite add up. I mean, we're told by Myra that it's caused by the victim's blood increasing in mass, causing the resultant pressure to eventually burst the victim's skin at weak points, which tends to be in the palm of the hand. But then later, it's explained that they vitally absorb blood through these areas. So, why would such an essential, vital part of the anatomy form through an accidental side effect? The film also has a slight inconsistency with how it wishes to tackle its female characters. Both Myra and Holly have dialogue, which suggests never to underestimate them simply because they're women. Myra is much more independent and expressive of this individuality, certainly, though Holly is not portrayed quite as well. She vies for her legitimacy and dependability as an individual, but barring the one kick-ass moment where she saves Josh... The rest of her appearance has her reduced to the usual screaming damsel who requires rescue by her male companion. In a particular instance towards the end siege part of the film, she's got to that stage of not even wanting to run or move and is being dragged along by Josh to moans of, I can't do it, I can't. A bit disappointing really when the script seemed to show promise of a good resolution to this issue. After hearing constantly, don't leave me here just because I'm a woman, it's then a bit silly to not do anything with that thread and just leave it kind of swaying in the wind. While these issues can be a bit jarring, it really doesn't ruin the film whatsoever. There's a real dedication to characters and setting, and the monsters, while a little been there done that, are at least portrayed with enough gusto and panache that make the action sequences of the film quite entertaining. There's little humour in the film, admittedly, but the events of the film are not too dour or maudlin either. The makeup effects are also adhered to with dedication, though the film notably is absent of major levels of gore. The zombie makeups are all that we have to compensate, and in terms of the way that the film plays out, that's actually not too bad of an exchange. The lack of on-screen explicitness was presumably a result of the producers aiming for a PG rating at the box office. Once the film was finished, however, it ended up getting an R rating anyway, so it does feel a little bit like a missed opportunity, but it's legitimately not to the film's detriment. There's enough thrills, style and characters here to keep you entertained, and it's worth a watch for 80s genre enthusiasts. Josh was played by Wings Hauser, who's a TV film director-video leading man who's been in stuff like 1978's Dog Soldiers, uh, Deadly Force... Dead Man Walking, Beastmaster 2, Skins, Life Among the Cannibals, and he even made an appearance in 2010's Rubber. Bo Hopkins played the role of Sheriff Stewart from 1969's The Wild Bunch, Day of the Locust, Tentacles, Midnight Express, Sweet 16, 1998's Phantoms, and From Dusk Till Dawn Part 2. Jodie Medford, who played Holly, had previously been in 1983's Chained Heat, while the cute Lee Montgomery, who played Mike, had previously been in Bird's Offerings and Ben, the sequel to the killer rat movie Willard. The unfortunate Billy was played by young actor Carrie Guffey, who played Barry in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Myra was played by Jennifer Warren, who's been in Night Moves, Ice Castles, 1985's TV movie Mirrors, and she also had an uncredited appearance in the Mel Brooks comedy Life Stinks. Jack Popwell, who played Stuart's superior, Dawson, had previously had a small role in Deliverance, while Wallace Wilkinson, who played Mr Mitchell, had previously starred in the video nasty Cannibal Apocalypse. 
As mentioned before, the director of the House on Sorority Row, Mark Rosman, was originally attached to the project before he left the production in the first week. He was replaced by director John Bud Cardos, who helmed the eco-horror Kingdom of the Spiders with William Shatner. Cardos does have an impressive array of credits too, like acting, stunt work, transportation, second unit directing and producing on films like Satan's Sadists, The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant, The Wild Bunch, Phantoms and 2000's Memento. Writer John C. Cruz was bizarrely, with the exception of Mutant, exclusively a production accountant who worked on Dead of Winter, Kindergarten Cop, Child's Play 3, Mighty Joe Young, I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry, and Terminator Genesis. Producer Nathaniel J. Dunn later went to work in the camera department on The Osterman Weekend and Flatliners. Henry Founds, another producer, returned from Cardos's Kingdom of the Spiders production, as did fellow producer Ego Cantor. Producer Edward L. Montoro also worked on the film, mentioned before when we've covered Pieces. Now, if you remember, he also worked on the video nasties Anthropophagus and Don't Go in the House, but most notably, he vanished without trace in the mid-80s. It's particularly noteworthy that it was in fact due to the low financial return of Mutant that Montoro's company Film Ventures International suffered the end of business. Subsequently, Montoro divorced his wife and she ended up owning half of Montoro's properties and capital. Due to the stress, Montoro was hospitalised for several months and then upon his discharge, he withdrew several millions from the accounts of FVI and then disappeared. No one has heard from him since and the company subsequently collapsed officially in 1985. Richard Band, mentioned when we covered the House and Sorority Row, composed the music for Mutant as well as well as Reanimator and From Beyond, etc., etc. Alfred Taylor was the cinematographer, who'd worked on the frequently re-edited 1966 film Bloodbath. He also worked on Spider Baby, sports-themed slasher Fatal Games, and the cult hit Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Editor Michael J. Duthie has since gone on to many successful productions, like Bloodsport, Universal Soldier, Stargate, Stigmata, and London Has Fallen. Special effects guy David B. Miller cut his teeth on stuff like the video nasty Superstition and Michael Jackson's Thriller music video before graduating after this film onto Nightmare on Elm Street, Night of the Comet, Friday the 13th Part 5, Cocoon, Night of the Creeps, Prom Night 2, The Terminator, Tremors, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5 and 6, Night Terrors, Batman and Robin and even the live action version of Doom. Another one, Vern Hyde, worked on Evil Dead 2 and the subsequent Army of Darkness, as well as Rana, The Legend of Shadow Lake. Finally, there was Paul Stewart, who worked on The Exterminator, Michael Cimino's box office bomb, Heaven's Gate, Predator, Who's Harry Crumb, The Burbs, Tango and Cash, Die Hard 2 and Die Hard with a Vengeance, and finally, the 2001 version of Planet of the Apes. The film was quite rarely released in the UK cinemas before America in 1984, under the title Night Shadows, but it then played in the US under the same title, though the producers thought of alternatives such as Things in the Night and Plain Old Toxic Waste. For its VHS release later that year, it first received its title of Mutant, which it's retained ever since. Rather bizarrely, on the German VHS, the film is actually known as Mutant 2 despite this being the original film. It was released in the UK the same year on VHS from Entertainment in Video, where it was an uncut print. 
It hasn't really been subject to any cuts anywhere, though, according to my research, so I doubt it would have been paid any attention in the Video Nasty era. It's possible, of course, but considering Entertainment in Video didn't release any contentious material, they wouldn't really have been sought out by the police. The pre-cert tape disappeared anyway as the BBFC began to certify films, and the next time that we got the film was in 1987, where it was the same version re-released, but with a legitimate 18 certificate. The same print was released on DVD in 2002, but it retained the 18 certificate, which is a little bit stupid, really. I mean, the film has no nudity, little to no gore, and it doesn't even have that much bad language. It should be a 15 at most. So that was Mutant. Let's get on to the sequel, Mutant 2. Or more appropriately, Alien Predator. In 1973, NASA launches their Skylab space station in orbit around the Earth for a series of unknown experiments. By 1979, the natural orbit has collapsed and the station re-enters Earth's atmosphere, crashing in the countryside near Duarte in Spain. Five years later, some kids, Damon, Michael and Samantha, are driving through the area whilst on vacation, when a cow grazing suddenly dies violently, its innards splayed across the ground, attracting wild dogs to it, one of which is then attacked by something inside one of the carcasses. Shortly afterwards, Michael swerves to avoid the carcass and gets out to investigate, only to hear strange noises, and he slips in the blood. The group head on to sleep for the night, waking up the next morning next to another camper occupied by an Indian family called The Bodies. Heading into the town's cafe, the trio encounter Dr. Tracer and his companion, Captain Wells, who go into a nearby hotel to discuss something. Once inside his room, Wells reveals a mangled corpse in the bed for Tracer to investigate, explaining that the dead man was sent to discover why communications in the nearby research centre had ceased. Sensing movement within the body, Tracer makes an incision in the face, splashing Wells with some of the blood. After encountering the strange waitress at the cafe and subsequently encountering an aggressive truck driver, the trio decide to leave the town. Wells and Tracer drive to an old ruin which houses a scientific facility and they explore it wearing hazmat suits. 
They find a canister labelled Skylab, forcing Tracer to reveal that the space station was experimenting with alien organisms on animals, but it had assumed that the creatures would perish upon the station's re-entry to Earth. Surmising that they've survived, Tracer deduces that the mangled body was exposed to the alien contagion, fatally killing him in about 48 hours. Realising he is also infected, Wells aims his gun at his head and pulls the trigger. Samantha leaves the camper after the boys insult her and encounters Tracer who tries to warn her about the danger, but she ignores him. When she gets groceries, she's approached by a strange bleeding man in a mask, and when she exits, she's driven at by the aggressive truck, which misses her and crushes the masked man instead. Tracer gets her in a car and forces her to drive away at gunpoint. Hearing the commotion over the radio, Damon goes to the body family for help, only to puke at what he sees. Michael investigates and finds the family's bodies are horrifically mangled. Back at the hotel, Tracer tries to call for outside help, while Samantha looks through the halls and encounters one of the infected corpses, which births one of the small alien creatures. Damon and Michael soon arrive on the scene, whereupon Tracer takes them to the bridge leading out of town, showing that the military have arrived to barricade the place to prevent the infection from spreading any further. They drive to a shop to hide out, while Michael offers to steal into the lab to grab the canister, which Tracer explains can help find an antidote to the alien infection, which ends up causing nosebleeds and insanity before the creature is expelled from the body, which explains the strange behaviour of the town's residents. Michael drives through the streets, attracting the attention of infected drivers on the road. Losing them, he gets into the lab and is shocked upon seeing Wells' corpse, with his face clearly erupted outwards. He's shocked again when a small creature jumps out and attacks him, so he grabs the canister and beats the creature off of him. Suddenly, a self-destruct sequence initiates, forcing Michael to run quickly from the site before it detonates. Heading back, he gains a pursuer in a car, but manages to shake him off and reunite with the group, where Sam kisses him. Formulating the antidote, Tracer tests it on himself just before the group hear overhead F-16s. Correctly guessing that the government plans to napalm the area, the group are then shocked when Tracer develops a nosebleed, and he runs away. Damon tries to reason with him, but Tracer is then run over by the manic truck driver, causing the trio to flee in their truck. They are pursued by the same truck driver as they try to escape past the barricaded bridge, whereupon Damon shoots out the tyre of their pursuer, causing him to drive into flames. Cheering that they've finally escaped, the group drive to a nearby gas station to fill up on gas. As the attendant cleans their car, an alien suddenly bursts forth from his head, killing him. Attacked by the creature, the group drive off, running the creature over and heading into the night, unaware of how far the infection has spread across the country. As they get near Madrid, Damon's nose begins to bleed.
Oh boy, don't you just love non-sequels? In Alien Predator, though, surprisingly, it's not the Italians who are ripping stuff off, but the Spanish. Who knew that they could be just as derivative? Known in the UK as Mutant 2, Alien Predator is a rather low-rent effort at a science fiction horror from director Darren Serafian. One of the first things that my research yielded is that no one seems to know which year this film was actually released in. It's generally accepted that the film was shot in 1984, but after that it gets incredibly foggy. The UK VHS release is marked in August of 1985. IMDb lists the year as 1986, whilst Wikipedia lists it as 1987. There's nothing definitive about this release date, but since the pre-cert UK VHS was definitely released before the Video Recordings Act had truly taken effect in 1985, I'm going to go with 85, just for the purposes of this. Compared to Mutant, Alien Predator is another typical 80s horror movie, though instead of doing a slightly different take on zombies and toxic waste, this film cherry-picks elements from more alien-based horrors to have something that feels similar in tone to Ridley Scott's and James Cameron's works with the Xenomorph. It also has a slight resemblance and feel to Alien Terror, which was the unofficial Italian sequel to Ridley Scott's film, whereby we have an alien menace that similarly gets to Earth somehow, and wreaks havoc in a populated area. Unlike those examples, however, Serafian's film takes a rather unexpected approach to the subject matter that will either delight the viewer or turn them off somewhat. I'm somewhere in the middle on this, and I may have to rewatch it again just to see how I actually feel about it. Despite being peppered with some really strong, gory moments, most of the film is actually quite a restrained affair in terms of bloodshed, and violence, and threat and aliens. Instead of too much visible on-screen action or gore, the focus in Alien Predator is our trio of protagonists. The best driver in Hollywood, Michael, the James Cagney impersonator, Damon, and the bubbly yet ditzy Samantha. The viewer follows them as they go on vacation through a sleepy town in rural Spain, only to become aware of the strange inhabitants infected by an alien parasite brought to Earth by a crashed space station. It's rather silly stuff, and even for a tongue-in-cheek horror, the atmosphere of the film is incredibly laid back and light on scares. In fact, in pure contrast to Mutant, which takes itself much more seriously, Alien Predator eschews the dread and threat of alien invasion to tell the story of this trio, with a particular emphasis on humour and silly shenanigans. Let's start this time with what doesn't work in the film first, which is the humour. It's far too forced for horror fans, and it feels like the sort of film that is just taking a different, more satirical approach to the usual, a little similar to Critters 3 or Gremlins 2. But without an actual official first instalment, though, the film just comes across as a little bit desperate. The humour does work in some areas, but it falls completely flat in others. The dialogue has a lot to do with this, as it feels clunky, awkward, and increasingly ludicrous as the film goes on. The scene where Samantha gets offended and storms out, the car chase scene later in the film, and even the moment where the trio are in the cafe, they all fall just a little bit on the cringier side of funny. And this certainly isn't going to be to everyone's taste. I mean, I definitely had some issues with it, and I feel that I have quite a high tolerance for this sort of thing. Another thing that lets the film down is the de-emphasis of actually having aliens attacking people. 
It's established quite early on that the populace has been infected and they've become psychotic as a result until the alien gestates appropriately and then bursts out, very similar to a xenomorph. While this does give us some interesting oddities in antagonists as the trio are pursued by varying threats, it does leave you sometimes reminding yourself that it is in fact an alien film. We only see the aliens pretty much twice in the movie, the most clearly of which is in the film's ending. And the irritating thing is that the alien looks really bloody good, which only beggars the question of why it wasn't shown more. The film's sometimes languid pacing also doesn't really endear you to what's going on. It really drags out some of those scenes of the love triangle and the juvenile distractions of our main characters. While the film is so laid back that it's practically prostrate, it does have little sprinkles of interest throughout the monotony. For example, the film is so utterly bonkers and silly that you're practically endeared to it, at least for a little bit, just for having a gay old time. Our range of alien-infected townsfolk ranges from a massively mad-haired cafe waitress, whose perm has just gone disastrously wrong. There's a strangers-slash-leatherface-inspired shopper who bleeds underneath their mask. The truck from Jeepers Creepers, or Steven Spielberg's Jewel, seems to make an appearance as well, constantly hounding our protagonists without so much as a glimpse of the driver. You also get the Body Family, which are the most outrageous portrayal of an Indian family stereotype since Apu from The Simpsons. What makes this worse, though, is that the actress playing the child is so very obviously not Asian in the slightest. While it's confusing at first, since the explanation of the insanity doesn't come till much later, this approach to the alien infection at least allows some fun and novel ideas to emerge. Despite the rather forced humour, the trio are at least likeable to a certain degree, and they're affable in their own exploitation-ridiculousness kind of way. An element which is quite successful, though, are the special effects. The opening shot has some wild dogs eating a cow's carcass, which is obviously not real, but the gore in this section is particularly gruesome, especially with the sound editing, which gives us this retching squelchiness that I haven't really experienced in many other films. Other moments include a mutated corpse being gruesomely cut into by Tracer, the dead Wells expelling an alien from his hollowed-out head, and in one of the more graphic shots, an alien bursting from a gas attendant's head, leaving a horrifying destroyed face in its wake. Each of the facial mutilations are so well executed that I can vividly remember them, but like the shot of the actual alien, it just made me want more. I really feel that the film could have been so much more successful as a whole with just more of these splattery moments. They are certainly above average in terms of skill, and for these moments alone, the film is worth seeking out. Alien Predator was lucky, really, to be released in the era where one good special effect could at least save a film from total obscurity, unlike today, where special effects are a dime a dozen. The film also has quite a few references to other media, usually in tone with the tongue-in-cheek attitude to the humour. There's a seemingly sentient tricycle, which soon really makes an appearance in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, and there's also a doll called Talky Tina from an episode of The Twilight Zone, which gets thrown at our trio, the latter of which seems to be a direct reference to the director's Darren Serafian's father, Richard, who directed that episode in question, The Living Doll. 
Actor Dennis Christopher, who plays Damon, also reenacts his famous stint on Fade to Black by mockingly retreading the steps of James Cagney in the movie White Heat. Other interesting elements seem to just be entirely by accident, such as the government science lab being underground in what looks like a castle of all things. With others, I'm not so sure about whether they're purposeful or not, like the fact that Tracer wishes to cure them of alien infection by taking a sample of the group's blood, which harkens back to John Carpenter's The Thing, or the scene of the group looking worried as the locals' reactions to their presence. Reminds me of the other Spanish thriller film, Who Can Kill a Child, that we covered previously. Regardless of whether these elements were on purpose, or just joyfully serendipitous, the film should probably be sought out simply to experience the sheer ridiculousness of the dialogue and plot, whilst also enjoying the fleeting, albeit incredibly graphic, smatterings of death. Michael was played by actor Martin Hewitt, who's been in the pirate movie Yellowbeard, Endless Love alongside Brooke Shields, and also a set of softcore director video releases in the early 90s. Presumably, Hewitt was considered a bit of a heartthrob, which I can at least envision. His best friend Damon was played by Dennis Christopher, who most people would recognise as the adult Eddie Casbrack from the TV movie Stephen King's It. He also had roles in 1971's Blood and Lace, uh, Fade to Black, and more recently, Django Unchained. Lynn Holly Johnson, who played Samantha, had previously been in Disney's horror film The Watcher in the Woods and the James Bond flick For Your Eyes Only. The only other person of note, though, is Yosef Bakari, who played Mr. Body. He was also the assistant director on the film, as well as many others like Eliminators and Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. The director of the picture was Darren Serafian, whom we've encountered before as Kenny in Zombie Flesh Eaters 2. As mentioned in that episode, Serafian became a producer and a director relatively quickly after starting his acting career, and he'd actually directed Alien Predator before he even landed the role on Zombie Flesh Eaters 2. Today, he directs episodes of TV series like Blue Bloods, Colony and The Gifted. Serafian also wrote the script, based on an original screenplay by Noah Bloch, who has no other credits at all. The producer, Carlos Ored, was also a director himself, responsible for Horror Rises from the Tomb, Curse of the Devil, and the video-nasty Spanish Jallo film, The Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. Due to his experience on the film, Ored actually retired from filmmaking altogether, caused by what he perceived to be a lack of professionalism on set. Apparently, the film also went over budget and took a lot longer than originally estimated to shoot completely, meaning that Ored was responsible for most of the debt incurred by these extensions. Other producer, Edward Sarlui, later worked on Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and High Spirits, while Helen Sharbo equally joined him on Killer Clowns. The music was done by composers Thomas Chase and Steve Rucker, who between them have done most of the music for a whole host of children's programmes, like The Batman, Dexter's Laboratory, The Powerpuff Girls, Scooby-Doo, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Digimon, etc. etc. The cinematographer, Tote Trenas, returned to work on the slasher film Edge of the Axe, while director Dennis M. Hill went to work on Police Academy 5 Mission to Moscow. The special effects were done by several people, one of which is Mark Shostrom, a rather prolific special effects guy whom we've seen before on The Mutilator. 
Another special effects guy, Juan Antonio Balanden, is also familiar as he worked on Who Can Kill a Child, as both an actor and a makeup artist. Another crew member of the effects was James Cummins, who worked on a large variety of horrors, like the video nasty Dead and Buried, The Beast Within, Cat People, Jaws 3D, The House, and The Boneyard. Margaret Prentice was another from other films like Evil Dead 2, Total Recall, Drop Dead Fred, Deep Rising, The Howling, Robocop, Hocus Pocus, Seven, Fight Club, There's Something About Mary, White Chicks, Click, Cabin in the Woods, Men in Black 3, The Amazing Spider-Man, Oz and the Great and Powerful, etc, etc, etc. Finally, there was Bill Sturgeon, whom we've covered before when we talked about Videodrome. The film had a video release first because of issues trying to release the film in America. It wouldn't be released stateside until 1987, when the film's title of Alien Predator was used to cash in on the much more lucrative titles of Alien and Predator. It had releases subsequently under the title The Falling, but in the UK it was retitled as Mutant 2 to exploit Mutant's VHS popularity. Released by Entertainment in Video as well in 1985, the film was released, but it was unfortunately a pre-cut version, which removed all of the shots of mutilated corpses and removed the shot of the alien erupting through a gas attendant's face in the film's climax. Due to both this and the fact that Entertainment in Video were good boys during the rest of the video nasty scare, the film probably wouldn't have attracted attention. It may have been that the distributor was aware of the video nasty problem in the UK and decided to dodge a bullet by pre-cutting the violence themselves. Regardless of the intention, the film has never been released in the UK since, so this rare pre-cut version is the only legitimate copy of Alien Predator that we've ever had. It's clearly screaming then for a restoration from our tried and trusted cult film labels, and I'm sure it probably won't be long before we see this one yet again. So that's our show for another week, ladies and gentlemen. So thanks as ever for your ears, and I hope that you've enjoyed hearing my monotonous, boring voice yabber on and on. If you've been affected by any of the issues in tonight's programme, please do get in touch with me over Twitter and Facebook, where one of our team will be happy to help you self-medicate. Drop me a message or a tweet, whatever you like. I love talking about horror in general but especially the Video Nasties era. I never experienced this time period for myself, so I'm always trying to gain some new perspectives on it. If you're around, I'd certainly love to hear from you. Vitally, though, next week's episode is taking on another theme yet again, but one that we're familiar with. It's our last Polizioteschi episode, featuring two violent crime capers from Video Nasty veterans Ruggiero Deodato and Lucio Fulci. So join us next week for Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man and Contraband. But until then, 
Stay clear of the toxic waste and avoid the crashed Spanish space stations, please. Goodbye!